This is an ABC podcast. It's amazing how little we've studied mental time travel. A number of evolutionary psychologists and others, they would argue that our capacity to engage in mental time travel into the future was kind of the first beginning of foresight, if you will. And broadcasting it to other people gave us a big survival advantage. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on This Working Life, as we hurtle towards the end of the year, how are you feeling about 2023? This episode, pre-mortems, how to practice hindsight in advance by looking at what went wrong before it does. And on the flip side, imagining success and how you got there. My full name is Haya Griva Rao. My title is the Ethel McBean Professor of Organizational Behavior, Graduate School of Business, Stanford University. Boy, that's a mouthful, but let me quickly reassure your audience that nobody ever calls me Hayagriva. I've been called Huggy since birth because of a random accident. I have a great aunt of mine who's American. And we all know you as Professor Huggy. What is a pre-mortem? Let me back up briefly. As human beings, we project into the future or can project into the future and then can actually design plans and implement them. One of the simplest ways of projecting into the future is to engage in mental time travel. What we do in mental time travel is sometimes we go backward. We rely on something called episodic memory to do that. And exactly the same thing is responsible for us going forward in time. So when we engage in mental time travel forward in time, we're kind of like simulating the future, like you would a computer simulation. You're imagining things. What we do is we distinguish between pre-mortems, where what you do is you imagine, let's say, six months out or a year out, your new product or your idea or in your new job, you you fail and you assume that. And then you look back and you say, can write a story of all the events leading to this imagined failure. That is what a pre-mortem is. By contrast, a pre-victorum is where you assume the opposite. You say, I'm going to imagine my new product or business or venture or action was successful. Having assumed that, I'm going to look back and then write a story of the events leading to this imagined success. Those are different kinds of time travel to different destinations. So Huggy and his colleague Bob Sutton have built on the pre-mortem idea and added the positive version of the future, the pre-victorum. Now, most people would have heard mainly of a post-mortem, and that's when you've finished a project or you're trying to look at how you went as a team or as an individual, and you actually say, oh, what did go wrong with our project? How is a pre-mortem more useful in a way than a post-mortem, would you say? Pre-mortems and pre-victorums are before anything actually has happened. You're just imagining something failed in the pre-mortem, you're imagining something succeeded in the pre-victor. Both of them are anticipatory. 
as we approach the end of the year, Huggy, and people can start doing these pre-mortems on the year ahead, either as individuals or teams, how would you suggest we apply your work around pre-mortems to this practice? Most of us at the turn of the year, we make resolutions. The problem with the resolution is it's an intention, but it's an intention that's unlikely to get translated into action. And the reason is there's no implementation plan behind the intention. You just want to do this. Most of the times, what happens is when we make New Year resolutions, we sort of want to go to a destination. I want to lose weight or like I want to acquire this new skill or whatever. But the problem is you don't know what the journey is to the destination. So if you don't know what the journey is to the destination, how are you going to get to that destination? That is exactly where pre-mortems and pre-victorums play a big role. Because what you're doing is, in your mind, you're imagining, ah, I succeeded in a pre-victorum. And then retrospectively, you're imagining all the things that led to it. Now, you do the opposite, of course, in the pre-mortem because you're imagining failure, but you still work out all the steps. You can do this individually. It's even better to do it with a team of neighbors, friends, uh, colleagues at work or whatever, because you'll understand valuable things about the journey. And then you're much, much more likely to undertake all the steps in the journey and hopefully accomplish it. Can you take me through how to go about a pre-mortem if I was doing it, say with my team? So I've done pre-mortems for many companies and what they typically insist on, and Lisa is on me signing a non-disclosure agreement, but I can share with you a pre-mortem I did uh, with, uh, and a pre-victorum I did for Stanford Medical School so that listeners get a flavor of how it looks like. The new dean of the Stanford Business School is a very prominent scientist, Lloyd Miner, and he had a vision. And his vision was, hey, we have so many molecular biologists on the Stanford campus. Wouldn't it be a great thing if they came up with new drug ideas and we have two hospitals on campus and we can run clinical trials and out of the pipeline come drugs that save lives and also add, of course, to Stanford's patent portfolio. And he thought, well, he needed a couple of billion dollars and he needed to recruit 15 scientists. That was kind of what he thought were the first steps of what he was trying to do. And he asked me to do a pre-mortem and a pre-victorum. And I told him, I said, Lloyd, you know, why don't we randomly pick 10 people? Why don't we pick microbio and molecular biologists? We can pick... Uh, uh, nurses, we can pick doctors, we can pick pharmacists, we can pick uh, managers. So, and the only thing I told uh, him was don't introduce me to all 10 of them at the same time because I was helping him do the pre-victorum and the pre-mortem. And he said, why? And I said, well, if you introduce me to all 10 at once, first they'll know each other and then it won't be anonymous. And not only that, they'll talk to each other. That means we're not getting their independent view. And this is a really good point, Huggy. So uh, the first step is just to make sure that there's not groupthink is what I'm hearing from you. Exactly. And you want to create psychological safety for people to do this. 
That's why it's anonymous. Nobody knows who wrote what and so forth. Then what I did was I had to provoke their imagination into the future. So I randomly took five people and put them in the pre-victorum condition, five people in the pre-mortem condition. And to the five people in the pre-mortem condition, I wrote to them and I said, hi, I'm Hagi Rao. I'm helping the medical school. I'm writing to seek your help. And I explained what the pre-mortem was about. And I told them, please know that you have been chosen randomly for this exercise. Otherwise, if you're an employee and somebody says, hey, can you imagine this failed and write a story of the events leading to it? People say, are you, are you mind? <laughs> Why did I get picked for the failure? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of nefarious act is this? So once they realize it's random, their anxiety is assuaged, and then you tell them it's anonymous and confidential. But with the permission of the dean and the medical school, I gave them a made-up headline of uh, a prominent newspaper like the New York Times, and the headline said, debacle at Stanford, and the first two lines of the story were, people are dying in clinical trials at Stanford University. Remember, nothing has happened. This is all imagination. And then I told them, can you write a one-page story of all the events that led to that headline? So I got five stories of, or five pre-mortems. On the pre-victorum side, same kind of newspaper, but a different headline. And the headline said, Stanford drugs save lives. And the first two lines of the story were, new drugs are coming out of the Stanford pipeline. They're saving lives, dot, dot, dot. And I asked these five people, can you write a story looking backward of all the events that led to the headline. I had five stories of fail, of success in the pre-mortem, pre-victorum, sorry. And what was amazing was what people wrote in them. Was there a lot of overlap, Huggy, in terms of the stories, what made up a success or made up a failure? No, that's the beauty of it. Oh, how interesting. That is the beauty of it because that's exactly why we need to do both when we make big decisions. Because in the pre-mortem, you want to minimize errors and mistakes. That's kind of the implication. In the pre-victorum, you want to pursue opportunities and kind of take risks and so on and so forth. So you need to learn both things. And then do you bring anyone together after you've received all of the individual stories? We do. So here's kind of what happened. But I'll give your listeners maybe just a feel of what people wrote. So, for example, on the failure side, a number of people wrote and said, oh, my God, we're doing so many low-power clinical trials. If on top of this we have to stack large-scale trials, the system will collapse. On the pre-victorum side, a number of people wrote and said, you know, Stanford succeeded not because the dean raised so much money and hired great scientists. Stanford succeeded because we hired great nurses who knew how to manage clinical trials. And so you see the problem? When we imagine success, we often think of the one or two stars usually who create the success, so we think. But if two people climb Everest, they need 30 Sherpas. Who are the Sherpas in the American healthcare system? Nurses. And that was a surprise, I might add, to the dean. And it turned out we convened all of them together, all 100 heads of departments. We presented the pre-victorum and the pre-mortem in much greater detail. We put them into tables of five each, and we asked them, can you please tell us the one thing you should stop doing? 
And 16 out of the 20 tables that day said the same thing. Stop doing low power trials. That means less than 30 people. There's no statistical significance. Uh, you know, you're kind of making notes. There's no random assignment, most importantly. Why were they doing that? It turns out that's because of the way American doctors in teaching hospitals like Stanford are paid. They get paid a big chunk of their salary because they look after patients, but they're also expected to write grants and pay for the remaining half. It could be as much as 20 to 30 percent of their salary. So they write proposals to the Pfizer's of the world and say, hey, guys, you've come up with a new drug. We're going to follow patients who are taking the drug. We'll write useful notes and we'll give them to you. And Pfizer will cut you a check for $200,000 because it's tax free. We're a nonprofit organization. It's reasonably good marketing. I'm, of course, using Pfizer as an example. Now, when I asked the dean, what did the pre-mortem and the pre-victorum do? He looked at me and he said, it completely changed my priorities. I realized I had to begin by fixing physician comp rather than spending money hiring a bunch of people from the outside first. Put another way, what the pre-mortem and the pre-victorium made the dean realize was, hey, it's super easy to plan the wedding. We got to plan the marriage instead. And the only way you can plan the marriage is if you have those five stories of failure and the five stories of success. Huggy, and an important point there, which is that you, the first thing you asked people to identify is what would you stop doing? Now, very often when we're planning for the future, we're adding more and more and more things on and it gets overwhelming, this idea of we've got so much to do. So um, is it only stop doing? Uh, sometimes you have to actually think of not adding, but multiplying. Lisa. Uh, let's imagine, you know, three businesses or whatever, you know, you can add another business, but you can multiply the connections between the three businesses, if I use a business example. And so we don't think of multiplication often, and that's kind of what we need to do. And our response to the problem of multiplication is, oh, my God, my organization is silo. And then we add another silo. <laughs> <laughs> so first we subtract. We say, um, what should we stop? What should we let go of? And then after that, we look at where we can enhance what we're doing. So this idea of multiplication, is that what I'm hearing? That's exactly right. When we forward plan, we usually end up adding tasks. Huggy's saying we should first ask, what can I stop doing? And then look at what is left and ask, what can I connect so that things are more productive? For example, getting rid of any duplication between two different teams rather than adding in a new team. So, Huggy, heading into the new year, what should people and teams do for a pre-mortem on 2023? You know, people might be very interested in being promoted, for example. So you could actually do a pre-victorum, for example, of your promotion. You might be actually changing jobs. You might be taking a new job. And, you know, when you take a new job, you, again, don't want to plan the wedding. You want to plan the marriage. And because uh, otherwise you'll quickly realize, oh, my God, I misunderstood a lot of things or whatever. You might want to launch a new product, for example. You might want to introduce a new technology. All of these things at work are arenas where collective time travel in teams or individual time travel is super helpful. 
Let me give you one example of how it might help individuals. My graduate students at Stanford and I did the randomized experiment in a large Bay Area high technology company. They hired about 1,800 engineers and we randomly put them into three groups. One was a control condition. In one condition, they did a pre-mortem where they imagined their failure and wrote a story. Others wrote a pre-victorum, they imagined their success. We observed them seven, eight months later and we found out that people who imagined themselves being promoted and did a pre-victorum, they actually had the highest probability of being promoted. People who did the pre-mortem where they imagined they failed, they actually were much more likely to stay with the company rather than leave the company and go elsewhere compared to people who went through traditional onboarding, that is. But Huggy, would you say that it's good to do both a pre-mortem and a pre-victorum as an exercise rather than just choosing one or the other? Absolutely. We need both. And, you know, the value of something might vary with the context too, Lisa. For example, if you're in a nuclear power plant, you're much more likely to imagine failure and the cost of a mistake is super high. You might want to weigh the pre-mortem a little more than a pre-victor. On the other hand, when you're launching a new product, focusing on the mistakes to avoid might not be as helpful as doing the pre-victorum because when we do the pre-victorum, we have positive sentiments elicited in us. And then what should teams in organizations do at this point for a pre-mortem or a pre-victorum on the year ahead? So a simple thing new teams could do is before starting a project, do a pre-mortem and a pre-victorum. Don't only get people from your team, get people from outside of your team, maybe even some customers if possible, and then you're better positioned to accomplish the goal. Let's look at the psychology and the history behind the pre-mortem huggy. What inspired this idea? The inspiration behind the idea is really the idea of collective time travel and mental time travel. It's amazing how little we've studied mental time travel, Lisa. Uh, A number of evolutionary psychologists and others, they would argue that our capacity to engage in mental time travel into the future was kind of the first beginning of foresight, if you will. Broadcasting it to other people gave us a big survival advantage. Coincidentally, you know, at about roughly the same time, Homo sapiens learned because when they learned to broadcast the result of their time travels, they did that in the form of a story and language was important. So storytelling on the one hand, that goes hand in hand with this mental time travel, both of those gave like a big advantage to Homo sapiens over other primates. That's why we won. And how's the work of Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow and uh, is a Nobel Prize winner, how's it relevant here when it comes to, rather than me thinking, you know, and time travelling into the future um, from my current position, in a way, with your pre-mortem and pre-victorum, you're beaming me into the future and then I'm looking back. So what's happening there? That's exactly right. So what you're doing is you're engaged in this mental simulation. Daniel Kahneman and Actually, even before him, there's another wonderful practitioner called Gary Klein. They focused on the pre-mortem and only focused mostly on getting people to imagine failure and how to avoid it. 
And when they did that, they asked people for a list of reasons why something failed. What's kind of different about what I'm saying is we're adding the pre-victorum, but equally importantly, we're not asking people to give us a list. Instead, we're asking people to write a story. And the advantage of writing a story is every event has a timestamp, right? Like, you know, what happened on day zero, what happened on day 10 or whatever. Is there something about us being more optimistic about the future here, Huggy, when we're trying to think ahead? The moment we think of a pre-victorum, we are definitely more likely to be positive. And the thing about positive emotions is in psychology, one of the building blocks is positive emotions broaden us. They make us more open to new ideas, new possibilities, new kinds of people, and so on and so forth. Having said that, while they're extremely, extremely useful, in organizations, when you make costly decisions that are hard to reverse, like buying another company, for example, mergers and acquisitions, those kinds of things, you also want to find out, hey, where can things go wrong? That's kind of where the pre-mortem might help. But the psychology is, What's kind of important is not just doing the pre-mortem or the pre-victorum. The most important thing is sharing the stories, Lisa. In other words, what matters is not just the story, but the storytelling. And what the storytelling does is it creates common knowledge amongst everybody. Like everybody knows everything about what is going on. It kind of feels like it might even be harder to do a pre-mortem or pre-victorum, given that life is so, feels so chaotic and uncertain, even more so now. And that's certainly true. But one of the things is when you do the pre-mortem or the pre-victorum, Lisa, it's nice to have a diverse group of individuals from different functions, teams, and levels in the organization. So you're right. They're all seeing different parts of the elephant, but you want to put whatever they see together, and that's kind of where you gain perspective. I like that idea of also asking people outside your organisation to help you as well. Could you even do that with your own individual pre-mortem, even on your career, ask people like friends? Absolutely. You could actually ask your mentor, for example. One of the things I've been urging executives to do when I teach them at Stanford is, hey, don't bring your pissed off self to work. (laughs) I ask people, what? What's your best self, the one that defines you in your moments of peak accomplishment? And I say, give me three verbs or adverbs. I want actions, not traits. What did you do? Did you challenge? Did you build? What what, what exactly did you do? Did you write code? Whatever. And so once you understand your best self, then the most important question everybody should be asking themselves, I would say, at the dawn of the new year is, what percentage of my best self am I recruiting at work every day? Is it like 50, 60%? That means you're doing pretty good, you know, great as a matter of fact. But if you're recruiting your best self 10% of the time, that's like a problem because it means you're kind of maybe recruiting your worst self most of the time. We all need to be editors-in-chief of our lives. What each one of us should do is to identify, 
you know, what's the thing that is kind of frustrating, getting in the way, distractions, all of these kinds of things, so that I can recruit my best self. And that's where the pre-mortem and the pre-victorum would be very helpful. If we take a systems thinking approach, then if you change one part of the system, the whole system changes. And therefore, you as an individual, no matter where you are, you do have the power. Is that relevant here in terms of the pre-mortems and the pre-victorums and what the knock-on effect might be of doing this practice? Uh, We all live in a network of interdependencies and so we all matter. In that sense, we have power. That certainly is the case, but what's kind of important is, by the way, what the pre-mortems and pre-victorums presume is, they don't assume that every company has like one big brain that's like the CPU and everybody else is a peripheral. In fact, the very presumption is everybody has ideas. Everybody has a point of view. And you'd be surprised what they can tell you, only if you actually listen. Thank you so much, Huggy. Pleasure, Lisa. A delight to reconnect and thank you for inviting That's Professor Huggy Rao from Stanford Graduate School of Business. We made this episode on the lands of the Gadigal and Wiradjuri people. This Working Life is produced by Sarah Allerley, I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, love your work. Hey, I'm Sana Kadar, and I host a podcast called All in the Mind. If you've ever wondered how our brains work or why people behave the way they do, you'll love All in the Mind, I promise. It's a psychology podcast that explores everything from mental health to artificial intelligence. Topics like how the brains of introverts and extroverts differ how fame can warp a person's psychology, and why some of the most unethical experiments in the field of psychology were ever allowed to be conducted. Find All in the Mind on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.